for me. Father, there's no easy task standing before uh, your people week after week to deliver your word. It's a burden, sometimes difficult. And so I pray that your spirit will come upon us, will come upon me and help me to know that this is not my peace, that this is not my righteousness, that Christ is. I pray that the congregation would know that their goodness is not their peace. Their goodness is not their righteousness. Christ is. And that their failures does not determine who they are either. Christ does. And so, Spirit, you are our helper. You are our counselor. You are the one who leads us into all truth. And that's what I need for you to do today. That you will come and be what we need you to be. That you would lead us to Christ. That you would take this word that is preached and that you will apply it to our hearts, apply it to our minds. That when we leave here, we can leave in more confidence in our God that he is able, that he is a way maker. That he will reign over us despite our circumstances and that we can trust him. So Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Um, we don't need any more uh, New Year resolutions. You can stop them. Don't make any more. You can, you can kick them to the curb if you would like. You can send them home packing like my bulldog did as soon as on Monday. Uh, and so we need no resolutions is my point. And what we need is some reversals in 2018. Reversals. We need some reversals of destiny, a reversal of financial distress, a reversal of lifestyle, a reversal of our spiritual life, a reversal of our health, a reversal of our marriages, a reversal of our priorities, a reversal of broken relationships, a reversal of suffering, a reversal of joblessness a reversal of injustice, a reversal of poverty, a reversal of government officials, a reversal of silence, a reversal of our pride and self-righteousness, a reversal of our indifference and apathy. We need a reversal, a season of reversals, a change in the opposite direction, a different position, another course of action. So when you look at your life, what type of reversals Do you need in this new year? Think about it. What type of reversals do you need in this new year? Not a resolution, but a reversal. What do you need? We all need it. I need it. And we're not alone. There are reversals needed in the book of Esther as well. Queen Esther needs a reversal. Mordecai needs a reversal. The Jewish people within the Persian Empire need a reversal. All of them need a season of reversals. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to conclude this sermon series by looking at some of the reversals that take place in in the book of Esther. And, And I want you to bear in mind that these reversals that I'm going to talk about are all historical. They happen. They're part of Israelite history. 
But also keep in mind that the author does not recount these reversals as examples of morality. He's not recounting these reversals as examples of right and wrong. He simply tells us what happened without judgment and without commentary. Because, if, again, if you ever studied the book of Esther, you know that God is not mentioned in the book. You know that people are doing things and you don't know, is it right or wrong? There's a lot of gray there. But what's underneath these reversals is the providential work of Yahweh Elohim. That's what I want you to take from it. That his providence is at work, though it's often unseen and hidden behind the scenes. One philosopher and theologian says, life can only be understood backwards, but we must live forwards. See, we're looking back into the book of Esther. We're looking back into biblical history. We're looking back into these seasons of reversals. We're looking back into God's past providential works on behalf of his people. And through his spirit, we today can look back and understand and hopefully live forward by what we glean from these, this text today or these chapters today. I'm going through a bunch of chapters today. So we understand that there's a need for a reversal of function. In the book of Esther, a reversal of function. And this applies to the queen. She needs to have a reversal of how she functions as the queen of Persia. It's needed because of what's been decreed against her people throughout the Persian Empire. And if you've been here through these sermons, you, you know that, that genocide has been decreed against the people, the Jewish people within the Persian Empire. That that's what's coming. That's the looming thing that's coming. That's the injustice that's coming for God's people within the Persian Empire. And at this point in history, the Persian Empire is the largest empire in the, in the world. This king, Urshis, is king of the world, basically. And if this genocide comes through, it's not just going to affect the people in Persian proper. It's also going to inflict, inflict on the Jews in, in Jerusalem. Because at that time, they also are under the thumb of the Persian king. It's not just going to stop there. It's going to spread through all the kingdom. And so what is coming is real. This is history. I know for us, we, we, we're distant from it, but these people lived it. It was their reality, their suffering. And so we're looking back into that. Also remember that Mordecai, he comes to Esther for help. That was the last sermon that we left off with. He comes to her for help. And at first, she tells him no. That she was not going to go before the king. She was not going to go and, and, and plead for her people. And I understand why. Because she could die. It was risky. She had to put her life on the line to do that. She told him, if I go into the inner court without being called, there's but one law. Death. Death. So... She decides to help after Mordecai's convicting words in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. This is what Mordecai tells her. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, for the Jews will come from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the throne for such a time as this. Mordecai's words to the queen is, begins the reversal of her function. It's a, she moves from a function in silence to function as an advocate for her people. 
And the queen decides to be an advocate for her people before the king. And the purpose of her advocacy is somehow to prevent the common genocide of her people. It's risky. It's dangerous. She could die. And here's a principle for all of us. Doing what's right doesn't guarantee you're going to be treated right for doing it. Okay? That's your principle. Doing what's right in this life does not guarantee you're going to be treated right for doing it. Because the queen doesn't, there's no guarantee that, that she's going to be well received for doing this. There's no guarantee that, that she's going to be treated good and right for being an advocate for her people. And she knows this. She even embraces the reality that she could, I could possibly die. That doesn't mean she likes it. Okay? Doesn't mean she's jumping up and down about it. She accepts it. She embraces the reality that she could possibly die. But acceptance of hard realities can make you bitter. And it can also make you foolish if you're not careful. For the queen, before she stepped out into advocacy, she made preparations. She prepared for it. She requested that her people intercede on my behalf. Intercede on my behalf. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 17 says, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go to all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also hold a fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she prepares. She doesn't step out in haste. And this preparation is, is so that she would, but not, so that she would not give into fear. Because I'm sure she was afraid. She wanted to, to, to them to intercede on her behalf so that she can have the courage and the boldness to follow through on it, to give her strength to move forward and, and not back out. For advocacy, wherever, if you're advocating for your kids or people in your life, it ain't always safe or easy or comfortable. It can be scary and risky and, risky and dangerous. It requires preparation. And preparation is part of functioning as an advocate for Esther. And that's what she's doing. She's preparing and she's functioning. Are you in need of a reversal of function this year? Because we all function in various roles in this life. A reversal of how you function as a spouse? Is that what you need? A reversal of how you function as a friend, a sibling, a child, a parent, a church member, a boss? An employee, a neighbor, a student, a pastor, elder, or deacon. What do we need a reversal of? Take an honest look at at our life, and then we will see there are areas in our life where we need God to give us some reversals. And for some of us, that may mean being an advocate for somebody else. But will we? But will I? Queen Esther, three days after her, time of preparation, she takes action. She gets all dressed up in her nice Persian clothes and her royal robes, and then she positions herself for advocacy by going inside the inner court of the king's palace without permission, without being called, and stands in front of the king's quarters without knowing what's going to happen to her. She breaks law. She breaks the Persian law here because she hasn't been called. She puts her life on the line. Will she live or will she die? She lives. 
because the king shows her favor. Look at um, chapter 5, verse 1. says, when, when the king saw the queen standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then she approached and she touched the tip of the scepter. Is the queen just lucky? Did she just catch the Persian king on a good day? Did the Georgia Bulldogs just win in the Persian Empire? He just happy. Or is there something more going on here? Because you look at this and you say Yahweh, again, is not mentioned here, but he's not divorced from what's taking place. His providence is at work, along with Esther's decision to be an advocate for her people. His providence is at work in, the, in this reversal of her function. And the thing is, can we see it? And do we understand it? Because in our own lives, sometimes you cannot see God's hand moving. Let's be honest. You can't always see his hand moving. And sometimes it's unclear. But when you read this book and you see what's taking place here, it's more than just chance. It's not karma. It's not fate. It's our God who moves over our circumstances, as we just sung about. But do you believe it? To his credit, to his credit, the king knows something is wrong with the queen. He knows that she risked her life to come before him without being called. And you can see that in what he says to her. He says to the queen, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. Now, he's not going to give her half his kingdom, okay? That's just a good gesture not to be taken seriously. The point is that the queen has found favor in the king's eyes. And she now has his ear. She can now unload on the king, right? She can now tell him all that Mordecai told her. She can now fall down and, and plead on behalf of her people before the king. She can now verbally advocate for her people. She can now call out Haman for his evil deed. But the queen doesn't do any of those things. She, she, she takes a whole different approach to being an advocate to for her people. Verse 4. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Amon come today to feast, to a feast that I have prepared for the king. When you read that, what do you think about her approach? What do you think about it? It's indirect, it's passive, and some people would throw shade Esther's way because she's not direct. Why don't you tell the king what's up? Why is she going to have feast with a man who sentenced her people to death? Uh, she a sellout. She's a coward. She's not an ally. She's breaking bread with the enemy. And she's not invited to the Passover cookout. <laughs> she's not invited. <laughs> Don't be a self-righteous advocate. Advocacy can take many forms. There's more than one way to be an advocate for other people, and it will be in shades of gray. As one of the, at one of the Save Our Sons diversity dinners, I sat on a panel with, with a mom, and this is what this mom said. She says, every experience in your life helps you to be an advocate for other people. Every experience that God takes you through in life helps you to be able to advocate on behalf of other people. I love that. And she's right. And she's right. The queen is functioning as an advocate. You see, she's trying to figure out 
How do I be an advocate within a system and culture in which I have zero power and influence? Okay? She has no power. She has no influence. So she has to figure out how do I be an advocate in that situation, in this system? Because she just can't start accusing a high-ranking Persian official of, of, of evil. He's close to the king. And remember, the king's hands isn't clean either. Okay? He signed off on it. Remember? He, he signed off on the unjust law. So she's walking on eggshells, people. She has to be careful, wise, and smart. The feast is part of her plan. She chooses to take a passive and humble position. She's calm. She's composed. She doesn't show her cards. She has on her poker face. And to be honest, to be honest her, advocacy, her advocacy plan is tight. Because Nothing disarms people more than drinking and eating, <laughs> particularly in this culture, because they love to eat and they love to drink. And so she disarms them. She makes them comfortable. And the feast is her bait, and the fish take the hook. The king and Haman come. They have a good old time. They break bread with the king and the queen. They eat together. And while they're drinking, the king asks Esther a second time. What is your request? What is your wish? And she still doesn't tell him. She still holds her cards. This is what she tells him. My request and my wish is, if I have found favor in the king's sight, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. Both agree to come to the second feast, and both are unaware of what is taking place. Both are unaware that they have been hooked, particularly Haman. Because he's unaware that Esther knows what he has done. He's unaware that the queen is Jewish. He doesn't know that the queen is a Jew. No one knows at this point. He's unaware of the real reason why he's invited to this feast. It's for his own undoing, and he doesn't know it. He's unaware that a reversal is on the way in his life as well. It's not going to be a reversal of function. It's going to be a reversal of position. A reversal of position. And we see, and that begins in chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. This reversal of position it, it happens in Haman's life first because at this point, he is the second most powerful person in the court. He is. The king gave him all these promotions. He's the man and he knows it. He has power. He has position. He has privilege. He has an elevated position. He's a powerful man. But his conflict with Mordecai that has not been resolved is what leads to his undoing. It leads to his reversal of position. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. It says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart after the dinner. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nonetheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her along with the king. Yet all of this is nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
Then his wife and all his friends said to him, Let gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to, to hang Mordecai upon it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he made the gallows. It's amazing, you know, this man who's on top of the Persian food court, second to the king, but that's not enough. It's not enough. Think about your life. Is it ever enough? Or do you always want more? Notice how he escalates this conflict with, with Mordecai to the point now he wants to hang him. His inner circle, they don't give him wise counsel. They feed into his pride and his desire for revenge. So he builds this gallows and he's going to hang Mordecai on it. And so the next day he goes and visits the king. And in chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Now Haman, he enters the, the outer court of the king palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai and gallows he prepared for him. So he's in the court the next day. First thing in the morning, ready to move his plan, right and early. He enters his court fully expecting to influence the king once again to go along with his evil plan. He enters with great confidence, but he's unaware of what happened to the king the night before. He's unaware that his plans for Mordecai is about to be frustrated. And it's frustrated by Yahweh Elohim. Not by chance, not by karma, not by coincidence, not by fate. God intervenes in this situation through the mundane, not the extraordinary. See, sometimes we want God to intervene in the extraordinary, but he also intervenes in the mundane of your life. And that's usually the way he intervenes the most. Just in everyday life. The hustle and bustle of life. God intervenes there. But do we have eyes to see it? The intervention, he intervenes here through what I call the sleepless night of the king. Because the, the night before, the king could not sleep. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about the two king's units who guarded the threshold and how they sought to lay hands on the king. And he said, what honor and distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing had been done for him. If you remember the three sermons back, Mordecai saved the king's life, and he didn't get recognition. Things are coming full circle now. Full circle. Now we see why he didn't get recognition because of this situation here. God's plan. God has a plan for all your disappointments. But do you believe it? For all your suffering, for all your failures, for all your letdowns, for all your hurts. You don't know how that's going to become full circle. But he knows because he sees the big picture. All we see is here and now. He sees how it all flows together. But do we believe it? And do you see what Haman has unknowingly walked into? This brother's standing in the trap and don't know it. He's standing in the king's court thinking his plan is going to go somewhere, but it's not going to go anywhere. Why? Because there's a conflict. He wants to hang Mordecai. Now the king wants to honor Mordecai. Guess whose plan is going to win? In that situation, the king's plan every time. 
So he enters in. No, the king asks his young men, who is in the court now? They said, well, Haman's in the court. He, he's standing there, Lord. And the king said, well, let, let Haman in. So Haman comes in with confidence, but he doesn't even get to pitch his plan. Instead, the king asks him one question. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? The question catches Haman off guard. It even confuses him a little. And he properly thinks the king is talking about him. Because he says to himself, whom would the king delights to honor more than me? Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? In Haman's world, you see, and we also have our version of Haman's world. I have Alex's world that I live in. You have your world. And in Haman's world, there's no one else the king delights to honor more than him. It's so easy for us to over-exaggerate our own importance in life. That's another principle for you. To think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Because none of us Oh, it's a bigger deal as we think. And neither is Haman. You see, his vanity gets the best of him. It gets the best of him. He's unaware that this conversation is leading to a reversal of his position. And his answer to the king, his own answer to the king leads to the reversal. His own answer. 79, verse 79. Then Haman says to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has, has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The only reason... He puts forth this over-the-top recognition because he thinks it's him. Because he thinks it's him. Because he wants to feel like the king. He wants to wear the king's clothes. He wants to wear the king's ride on the king's horse. He thinks his position is getting ready to be elevated more. But this brother is in trouble, man. He's in trouble. The reverse happens. The air is let out of his gigantic balloon by what the king says next. He says to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, and as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, my lord, who sits at the king's gate, and leave nothing out that you have mentioned. He just threw up in his mouth. We're talking about being humbled. And that's humbling. His whole world just blew into pieces. And if he was made of Legos, this all would fall apart. Because the situation is this. The man who refused to show him respect, he now got the honor. Not only has he has to honor him, he has to dress him, put the clothes on for him, and then parade him around the city square on a horse. It's a lot of comedy here. A reversal of position. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. Listen, he's going to obey. He's not going to tell the king no. Okay? You don't refuse the king. If you want to live, you don't. 
So he led Mordecai through the square of the city, and he proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He wasn't happy when he said it. And imagine what he's thinking. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? He's like, am I dreaming? Am I, am I in the twilight zone? No, Mordecai. No, Mr. Haman. It's real. This is happening. A reversal of position is taking place. Mordecai rises up. Haman position falls. And after he does all of this, he runs home in tears. His face covered. There's grief. There's sorrow. And for the first time, his inner circle give him some wise counsel. For the first time, this is what they tell him. He told his wife and his friends what happened. And then his wife and wise men said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And that's what is happening. He's falling. A reversal of position is taking place. They see it happening. Mordecai sees it. And can his life get any worse than this? Can it get any worse? Yes, it can. And yes, it will. Because his fall isn't finished. There's another reversal that's going to take place. And I call this a reversal of destiny. A reversal of destiny. He, his fall doesn't end with his position. He's going to lose everything. All those things that he boasted about in chapter 5, his riches, his sons, his promotions, are all going to be taken away from him. And in the end, he loses his own life. It's a reversal of destiny. His evil plan against the Jews comes back to bite him. It hit, and it hits the fan in the second feast with the king. Because the tactful and careful Esther checkmates Haman. She checkmates him. And he doesn't even see it coming. She turns the tables on him. She traps him, and he has no way out. And this is what chapter 7 is all about. Verse 1. So the king and Haman went to the feast with the queen. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request, even to half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. Then the queen answered him, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And if, and if we have been sold as slaves, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared to the loss of the king. Then King Erchie said to the queen, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath before from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking. As Haman was falling on the couch where Queen Esther was, the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left his mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. 
So they hung him on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Season of reversals in the book of Esther. A reversal of destiny, a reversal of position, a reversal of function. Some of the reversals led to deliverance. Some of them led to destruction. But which are subject to God's providence? Esther's, Mordecai's, Haman, it's all three. And here's something that we need to understand about God's providence. God's providence isn't only at work when life works in your favor. That's another principle. His providence is not only at work when life works in your favor. It's at work when life doesn't work in your favor. But do we believe it? Every chapter in the book of Esther is saturated with God's providence. Every chapter. Not just the ones that work in Esther and Mordecai's favor. It's throughout the whole book. It's at work along with human actions and responsibilities and decisions. It's at work in the rises and the falls. And, and the same is true in our life and your life. There's a, in the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, says, Judge not by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose were weeping fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but the sweet would be the flower. God's providence swims in the bitter sweetness of life. And again, do you believe it? Do you believe it? In 2018, all of us will have sweetness and we will also have bitterness. And God's providence is over both. Over both. You will have some sweet reversals and you may have some bitter reversals. Okay? You will have some rises and you will have some falls. But one thing is constant. That is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. In the last few chapters, in chapters 8 and 9, there's one more reversal that takes place. And that's the, that's the reversal of the unjust law to commit genocide against the Jewish people. And here the queen, again, she pleads for the king to change the edict, to change the law that, that was issued by Haman. And so a second edict was sent out, and it allowed the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies, and they did. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. God fixes the injustice. He fixes the situation for the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. The book of Esther ends in a big celebration. But can you take that and build a theology around it? Because what happens when God doesn't fix it. What happens when you've done all you can do in your power and your responsibility, you did what's right, and he still doesn't fix it? What happens next? What happens when he doesn't fix what is broken in 2018? Your marriage, your family, your health, your finances, your job, what happens? And that's a hard question, but it's a good question. It's one that really don't want to think about. Because in 2018, there will be some things, relationships and situations that will be fixed, and there will be some that won't be fixed. They won't be fixed. I'll give you a personal example. 
When I was in the eighth grade, I started to develop a skin condition on the back of my head in eighth grade. I didn't know what it was at the time. And so as I got into high school, it started to get worse and worse and worse. And in high school, I was an overweight kid, shy. Then I also had the skin condition. And I was angry. Angry with God. Crying at night, asking God, take it away. Will you please fix this? Please fix this. Lord, please take it away. Please fix the back of my head, Lord. Please, please, please. I went to the doctor. I had shot injection, which was very painful. I did everything I could do in my own power. Lord, will you please fix it? Lord, will you please fix it? And people can be mean. People talked about me. People gossiped about me. It was, I had a hard time in high school with that. Hard time in college with it. And God, to this day, has not fixed it. I still deal with it. But what he fixed is me. I don't cry about it anymore. And I don't care what people say about it anymore. And so when things that come into your life that God doesn't fix, he ends up helping you to live with it. Because that's what he's done for me. He's helped me to live with it and to accept it. And that's what the fiction looks like for me. So there are going to be things that you go through. If you're getting ready to go off to college and young kids, there are going to be things that you go through that God might not fix on this side of glory. But what he would do, he would give you the strength to live with it. To live with it. And that may be what the fixing looks like for the things that don't be made right on this side of glory. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you but the one thing that you did fix is our eternal condition, that your sacrifice. That you did pay the price for our sins. And you did rose again on the third day. So help us to not forget about the cross. Help us not to forget about your finished work. And help us to know that, that all of our life is not going to turn out like we want it to turn out. But Lord, you are still good to us. You are still faithful to us. You, are, you still love us. And so as we go into this new year, help us to see your faithfulness. Help us to not forget that you are Emmanuel. Help us not to forget that through the ups and the downs and the reversals, that you are the one who reigns over our life. And you have never promised us that all of our life will be on the mountaintop. But what you have promised that you would never forsake us no matter what we go through. So increase our faith. Help our unbelief. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Let us stand as we close our service.